Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today, our guest is Thaddeus Woshik, the founder and a principal at the firm bearing his name. He is also the co-founder of GiveQuick, a technology business servicing philanthropies. Thaddeus and his team have clearly defined what their firm does and what they don't do and why you should contact them for legal support. Thaddeus, I've given our listeners some insight into your role and your firm. Can you expand on what I've said and give us a glimpse into who you are personally? Yes, thank you, Nicole. My firm focuses focuses on corporate and securities law practice almost exclusively. And my clients are in great part startup businesses or businesses in uh, sort of a growth stage. I also represent um, investors investing in startups or in growth stage businesses. I launched my own practice in January of 2010. I spent a great deal of time in the sort of the the so-called big firm model in New York City. I launched my own practice uh, after resigning from my last position. And I was fortunate enough to have an anchor client that made it possible, but um, there's still a little bit of trepidation, but it's gone quite well. And I was ready to be on my own. I was ready to take some of the, what I saw as mistakes in the traditional firm model and not make those same mistakes uh, while at the same time serving my clients and bring the sort of the big firm experience and abilities to their needs. Wow, a big decision. What personal strengths or habits gave you the confidence to make a decision like that and to really go out on your own without the support of the structure that existed in that big firm? By nature, I am entrepreneurially minded. My clients are entrepreneurs and I provide my clients with sort of an entrepreneurial model and a practice model on my part. So because that's the way I naturally uh, tend, it was it was kind of easy in that sense. I mean, the idea, the concept of me starting my own practice, yeah, there's a little bit of, there's a fear factor there, of course, because you don't have a, a deal flow that's uh, endemic to a, a firm structure. But I knew it was going to work. I was fortunate enough. I did have an anchor client that made it much, much easier than it would have been. But I would have done the same thing anyway. Started it in January of 2010. My decision was made Christmas Eve, the, the month prior. And I resigned on Christmas morning, uh, right before joining a group of very close friends for brunch. It was my Christmas present to myself. So I'm entrepreneurially minded. I was ready to do this on my own. Um, I, I knew there were a number of things I wanted to do in my practice that I wasn't able to do in the firm structure. And just, it felt right at the moment. And uh, I kind of, like a lot of other moments in life, there was a catalyst that was sort of an outside factor, but I was leaning that direction for at least a year before. It's been six years. When you look back at that, what has been one of the biggest challenges? Uh, let's start there. I don't know if this qualifies as a challenge, but the one thing that I most missed, and then I guess it's a challenge because I, I lack the benefit of the collegiality that exists when you're in a firm. You can walk down the hall and you can knock on someone's door and go in and say, listen, I'd like to discuss something with you. And you can go over, you can sit down for five, 10, 30 minutes and you can discuss something. You've got that, that collegiality. You can get someone else's input. So somebody else's perspective. I think that was the biggest challenge. Having to do everything on my own at first before I found a workaround to that. Was there anything that surprised you about going out on your own? Anything that you were somewhat like, hmm, okay, I wasn't expecting that? Yes. I was surprised at how easy it was to bring in business. Didn't expect that. I expected exactly the opposite. 
Did you have a particular growth strategy? Or? There was no strategy. It was a function of the relationships that I had built over time. And those relationships were built. I'm a fairly, I make friends easy. And I sort of, I guess I'm a social chameleon. I get along well in um, many circles. But it's a function, I think, of the relationships I had built. And one thing that I was taught as a young lawyer by one of my mentors is a business lawyer. It works for business lawyers. Every practice area will have probably some sort of corollary. But make friends with accountants in my case. And my accountant happens to be a very, very close friend of mine as well. But when you refer business to other people, people refer business back to you. And in the case of a corporate and securities lawyer that works with startups and growth businesses, it made sense for me to make referrals to others. Now, I didn't do that for on a tit for tat basis. It wasn't like I made friends just to make business. I made friends because I like to help people and I'd like to introduce people to other people who can help them. And so the new business that I generated was almost exclusively from referrals with one exception. And this is another surprise. I had a cold call within, I don't remember when, but within five or six months of launching my own practice, I had a cold call. Somebody found me on LinkedIn and reached out to me and it ended up being my single best client for several years. I am with you on that. I've had similar experiences where you meet someone and somewhat random interactions result in strong business. Often we suggest to our listeners, it's about being out there communicating, whether that's in your day-to-day life, in your professional life. It's somewhat surprising. We hear often that business comes from places we don't expect. So whether it's that cold call or that relationship in your community that It's definitely not a business relationship and it ends up being a good business contact for you. In either case, whether it's the cold call or whether it's uh, the referral, in my experience, in each case, though, it was the result of having reached out. I reached out in one way or the other. I reached out by putting my resume on LinkedIn and I made sure that my resume didn't read like everyone else's. There's a lot of, I avoided a lot of the words that you see. Some of the, some of the resumes are almost as bad as the singles online match sites. You have to be somewhat different, but still yourself. And the other case, I reached out to people and I said, look, this is what, I guess this was a strategy. You said you asked if I had a strategy and I guess this is, but what I did is I picked up the phone and I reached out to people. I said, I've started my own practice. This is what I'm doing. But if you know anybody who thinks you think they would benefit from meeting me or vice versa, please make an introduction. But that was it. There was no advertising, but it, re- it it was a consequence of reaching out and you've got to be able to network. And that was not a good word for many years. I sort of was kind of like, oh, I don't know how to network. What does it mean? At the end of the day, it's nothing more than finding something that you like to do that involves other people. There are formal networking groups and I I started one in New York. I joined one in Los Angeles, but then there are informal networking groups, whether you're joining, I don't know, join TNT to be trained to run a marathon or a triathlon for charity. You're going to meet a lot of people that way as well. To me, okay, I, every lawyer's got to do their own thing in their own way and be, you've got to sort of be yourself, but you've also got to get outside of that. Uh, I mean, we all live and work in our own paradigm, you know, that I hate to use the old trite phrase uh, outside the box, but you've got to do something different. So many lawyers that I know who do well as solos and work from the big firm world discovered that you've got to stop worrying about working. Start worrying about meeting people and you can call it networking or you can call it something else. But if you're stuck in the office 12 hours a day and you're a solo worker, in my experience, you're just spinning wheels. You got to get out there and you've got to cut yourself a little slack. It's interesting. We talk about you can't just work in your business. You have to work on your business. And that means finding new business. And that idea, though, of just putting yourself out there. And that can be done in a very professional way. I, I work with a lot of women who say, you know, I became a lawyer so that I can practice law. This idea of getting 
going out and networking and doing business development is so almost offensive to them. And when we talk to successful people, lawyers, other professionals who have gone out and grown their business, they've been very clear. They're not out networking to make friends. They're out networking to get business. And because they have something to offer and they do good work or their firm does good work, that idea of making yourself different, putting yourself out there, really getting out of the office and really working on your business and growing your business. It doesn't have to be uncomfortable. And that's really what our listeners are looking for are those ideas of, of how to do that. Are there tactical things that you do? Do you, you mentioned networking events. I'm a huge believer of joining an entity and then going. So if you join a particular group, I belong to the association. Association for Corporate Growth, I go to events. I don't just belong. I go three to four things a quarter. I go and attend. I see the same people over and over again. So at least we're reconnecting. Are there tactical things that you do like that to ensure that you're growing that potential base of clients? I like to switch from your strategic question to tactics. I was in the army. When I view my law practice as in terms of its growth and where I want to take it, I approach it as a business. And business has a lot of commonality with military strategy and tactics. Like I said, I really didn't have much of a strategy. I think I was more tactically focused. Um, My strategy was more sort of unspoken with myself. In Los Angeles, where I have an office, in fact, recently moved, I joined a very, very good networking group called Provisors. And I went to the meetings. They have monthly meetings. And during the meeting, somebody collects business cards at the end of the meeting. You get a sheet and you're paired up with two other people and you have, and y'all get together and you, you set a time to have lunch and then before the next meeting. But in addition, certainly when I first came here, I made a point of reaching out and doing a lot of one-on-ones and getting to know people. Picked up the phone and said, would you like to have lunch? I'd like to learn more about you. You know, what can I do for you? But really it's just getting to know people first. And the second tactical move that I made was in New York where, and this is shortly after discovering that I missed the collegiality of the firm world while not missing the firm world, was I started reaching out to, accountants and other lawyers who I knew and said, look, if you know anybody else with a similar background, it's not mandatory, but went to a big school. I worked in a big firm. And if you know anybody like me, we know. So I, again, I reached out and I asked people. And then I sort of said informally to a number of people, let's meet once in a while and talk. Let's talk what it's like to be a solo. What do we miss? How can we support one another? Started off as informally meeting in bars uh, once a month and just chatting. But one of the uh, attorneys and I became very close very quickly and we sort of decided to take it a, to the next step and we've created a formal group and our group meant monthly. There were no dues or nothing like that. Well, there were and after a while, but it wasn't dues. We just co- sort of put money in a pot, so to speak, so that we could pick up wine and cheese and have a, a very informal event. We had speakers come in and or we allowed people in the group to speak. But again, the tactic was reaching out. In my case, I reached out to other lawyers with similar backgrounds, but different practice areas to create a small network of people, of trusted advisors. And because as a core corporate and securities attorney, I can't do wills, but I, 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 my clients need will. But I don't want to refer somebody to either to someone I, I don't know or to someone who I know who I don't trust. I needed to be able to refer somebody who would treat my client well, give them top-notch service. And this is here being selfish, not embarrass me. I, I did not want to be embarrassed by making a bad referral. And I certainly didn't want to embarrass someone else that way. So we created this great network of people. Some good friendships developed out of it as well, sort of on the personal side. But that was probably my 
most important tactical step. It sounds like a big deal, you know, start a network. It wasn't. It was really s- simple. In fact, my my colleague, my co-founder of that group, she's um, of counsel to my firm. Her name is Irina Shulga. We have exactly the same practice area. And we never once ever had a concern about competition. I would very easily refer somebody to her, even if I could handle the work, because uh, we very deliberately, purposefully took the position that the rising tide lifts all boats. And if she does well, I do well and vice versa. And so in our group, we had people of similar practice areas and we only let people in to our sort of a little circle if they took the same position, collaboration rather than competition. It's a really interesting approach. We hear about folks curating their own networking event because they either are looking for a particular environment to develop relationships or in your case, I think that's great. It's, you know, hey, it came out of a desire to connect with others, to have a, a sounding board around where you were missing that connection. But also you have to have a referral network. I mean, in the work that you do, it, it is required. So why not create your own versus buying into one that exists? I had another guest talk about a corporate lawyer who moved from New York to Boise. And she was from a big firm and she sat down the first morning in Boise. She got her kids off to school, looked at her husband over the breakfast table and said, okay, I have no clients. <laughs> so here she was. And what do you do next? And of course, she picked up the phone and she started, she did some research and she started calling into the companies that were in Boise. And she basically said, I did some research. I want to work with your firm. I need clients. I just moved here, etc." She was still part of the big firm, but she said, I don't want to be your friend. Although I'd love that we became work friends at some point, but I need clients and was very clear on her objective and presented an idea or two and came in. So not super innovative, but definitely worked for her. And she now is a very established practice there. Have you seen an approach or have you used an approach that might be unusual or different? You mentioned being very direct, asking folks to meet with you. I worked in Europe for many years and the comfort and ease in which people asked me for coffee was pretty amazing, right? It was a very common thing. Let's meet for a coffee. Let's meet for a coffee. Not innovative, but easy. Anything you've seen that was different or innovative around the let's get together, let's exchange information, let's get to know each other. On the networking side? Or even staying in touch, that is, because I think staying in touch is a big part of this, right? So once you establish rapport with someone, you've got to stay in touch with them. Anything innovative? I don't think it's innovative anymore to be technologically uh, driven. In fact, the rules of professional conduct in most states that I'm aware of, and certainly in New York and California, now require you to stay on top of technology. That said, I use technology quite a bit. I'm very remote and very paperless. And when I keep in touch with my clients, I've got some clients that love to text. I'm not a fan of texting for confidentiality purposes, but if it's not confidential, I'm there. And I think I do so more than a lot of other lawyers. I'm also, and now that I'm married, this might have to change, but I've always been open to call me whatever time of day it is. And that's a personal decision. And it may not be a healthy one, but it works for me, or at least it did. I would say I probably, over the course of the past six and a half, seven years since I started my own practice, in many cases, I was retained without having met the client. And that's because of technology. And I don't know that that's innovative. I'm very technology driven. And I would even say some of my repeat clients, I've actually not yet met. Not because I don't want to, but because they don't have the time for it. 
or it wasn't necessary. I've had a similar experience in corporate roles that I had where I was selling an outsourcing solution, which over multi-year contracts, over a million dollars, we didn't meet the person until after the sale, frankly. We didn't meet the team because they were confident in our ability to deliver and we were able to effectively communicate with them. So I think the world is changing in a lot of ways. And I think that's, I hear from guests that almost forcing the face-to-face at times can be uncomfortable. People are quite comfortable in a lot of cases with setting an expectation and then evaluating a, a deliverable. Thaddeus, you started your business in 2010, two years after what really was a change in market conditions. Can you elaborate on whether that change in market conditions had anything to do with either starting your own firm or if it's had a lot to do with how you work with clients today? It didn't really have anything to do with my decision to start or even how I started, but it had a great deal to do with what I think is one way in which I distinguish myself from other attorneys who do the same work as I do. And it's a very client-driven approach to billing. We've heard as lawyers about alternative billing models, and it is something that I employ, but I think I employ it to, well, I'd say much more creatively than a lot of other lawyers do. I've given some talks on it to other lawyers, but it, my clients are small businesses. Every business has a life cycle, and within that life cycle, there are smaller cycles. And those cycles are marked by, among other things, different needs and realities of cash flow and of cost. And particularly when working with startup businesses, to the extent that the lawyer wants that business as a client and can afford to do it, there are significant opportunities for the lawyer to be creative in their billing. And I, over the course of my practice, I developed as many as nine different billing models. Some are only slightly different than others, and some are fundamentally different than others. But the idea is to be responsive to the needs of the business client as it goes through its growth cycle. Great point. I had the opportunity to interview a gentleman named Ron Baker, who has written extensively on value pricing and the idea, especially that the billable hour is not an effective approach for most clients and definitely not for the professionals delivering. There's no incentive. The incentive isn't there to actually do the work in a way that's efficient, align the work to the value. I have not heard of nine different defined approaches. If you would elaborate on one or two of those, possibly the ones that are used most frequently. Sure. I think one thing you said about aligning the interest of the lawyer and the client is a good place to start. And it's, it's not, look, it's not possible for all practice areas. Some are prohibited from this, I think, by the rules of ethics because of the practice area and others, it just doesn't make sense. But for business lawyers, one way of aligning the interests of a lawyer and client is to, for example, take an interest in the business. If you take one or two percentage points in a new business and in exchange, you work through sort of phases where for X dollars, Y hours of service and ends up paying you something nominal just to have some skin in the game. But in exchange, you get a percentage position in that new business. That, of course, shifts the risk hugely to the lawyer and not everyone's comfortable with that. But it does have the advantage of aligning the interest of the lawyer and the client. I've done this before. You've got to satisfy the rules of ethics when you do it. You've also got to satisfy your own comfort zone. You can end up hurting you. That's it's a risk reward basis. But there are other ways of doing this. Flat fee is what we're talking about. And there are opportunities where as a professional providing services, that's very appropriate. And I do that. We enumerate the tasks that the lawyer will do in exchange for the flat fee. I created for myself kind of a hybrid so that in a given period of time, let's say a month, in exchange for a flat fee, X, I will provide up to Y hours. If all Y hours are used, the effective hourly rate 
the way I do it, is half would be if I charge my normal hourly. But if all Y hours are not used, the effective hourly rate is a little higher. At the end of that period, it's typically a month. Sometimes it's on a quarterly basis. At the end of that period, it starts over again. And the question inevitably from the client is, what if I don't use all Y hours? Do I get rollover minutes? The answer is no. The answer is this is a decision that the client can choose this or not. But this hybrid approach is helpful. See, here's the thing. As a, as a business lawyer, let's say you've got an entrepreneur, they start a business, they're doing well. They grow a lot faster than they were ever expecting or that they're capable of managing. This inevitably results in problems. And those problems have legal components to them. Sometimes they're straight up legal problems. And if I can impress upon an entrepreneur who's at the appropriate stage of their growth, that it's in their best interest to meet with me on a regular basis, just even if we're just having lunch on, on their dime, it will help out issues. Not all clients want to do it. Not all clients appreciate it until something happens. Um, and, and I've got situations where clients didn't pursue, didn't seek legal advice or didn't follow it. And they got really a lot of trouble. And after the fact, they're like, okay, well, let's come around. Let's have a regular. And so this hybrid basis is what I call X for Y model is really, really, it means something. And if, if there's a budget department in the small business, they love it because they they know exactly how much they're going to pay. Now, sure, they should do an analysis. Is that appropriate to them as far as cost goes? This X for Y model, a service mark of mine, its hybrid approach is very helpful. And then another one that I've used, and this is for only for a really established organization, an organization with a real legal budget. They had, they know for a fact that over the course of the next 12 months, they will have a lot of legal needs. They just don't know what they are at the time. I've taken a, a lump sum fee at the beginning of the year. I'll put it in a separate account. Account. And in exchange for that fee, I provide services for the client for the year with no cap in my hours. Now, how do I protect myself? I enumerate those items that do not, the circumstances that are not included. For example, a very large not-for-profit organization, it was international in scope, and they had a real legal budget. They had a lot of legal needs, and it was very expensive on an hourly basis, and I suggested this, and it worked well for both of us. What I sort of, quote, suffered as a loss, if you look at it that way, I gained in certainty. And now, of course, the client needs protection, too. You give me a lot of money up front, and... What happens if I don't like you, Thaddeus, and I want to fire you? I'll try to make you like me, but this is what I call concierge billing. If I terminate the relationship without cause, and we define cause, then what I'll do is I'm keeping track of my hours. I've got the payment taken up front. I will apply an hourly rate to the hours I've done that is 50% of my normal rate. This protects the client because they've gotten serviced and I have to take the hit. If they term, there's a premium. We take the same number of hours that I actually already put in and multiply it by the premium hourly rate. And if there's anything left over, they get it back. So both sides are protected. So this concierge building is one approach. It obviously won't work for a lot of clients. This is a business client model. Flat rate I've done. I don't like flat rate, to be honest with you, because it does tend to shift too much of the risk to me. But when I do it, I enumerate the tasks. I will do one through seven or one through 12 or whatever in exchange for this fee. One thing I found in that, though, is if you're going through those tasks and the client decides to pull the plug, you have to put up front there that you know there has to be some protection. You can build in your own protection. Obviously, it has to be ethical. It has to be fair. And another thing I do, and this is not a billing model, so a client is a really amazing client. You love working with them. They're return clients. You recognize that and you sort of, and this is going to sound really therapeutic. I hate doing this, but you honor that relationship and you just do that. I have no problem saying, look, let's talk for an hour. Tell me what's going on. I won't bill you because I, what did I lose? I lost an hour of my time. But what I've done is I've gained the trust of the client and I've created a, a 
deeper, stronger, lawyer-client relationship. And if I think I'm not the right person, even if it's for an existing client, I'll say, look, I'm too busy, whatever. I'll refer it over to my colleague, Arena. But I think a lot of lawyers I know are very very good with discounts. Um, a lot just can't stand the idea. If you apply that wisely, they know it. Every lawyer out there has a client that loves them. And they hear from that client, you're not like my last lawyer. And that's what you want in a good way. And so I think the alternative billing models, the way you can be creative, it's really great for business lawyers. I've got litigator friends that are also creative. Uh, there are also hybrid approaches that they use. But for the solo or the small firm, corporate law practitioner, there's really a significant opportunity to go out there and meet the needs of the clients, to provide services and to get paid well for it. Have to agree. I mean, you gave examples there where an organization could budget effectively, where you have the opportunity to be proactive going in. And when you have either concierge or the X and Y hybrid model to be able to go in and, and have a conversation so that you can help them proactively prepare for what will come with that growth that you mentioned. And then, of course, providing the discounts, helping to build trust with those clients and then the clients that you enjoy working with that you have a trusting relationship are definitely the clients that are your biggest resources for both references as well as referrals. So great options for our listeners. If I could just mention one more, I think if there's anybody who's listening to your podcast who is just starting off, they're just launching their own firm and they're in my practice area. And I think this applies actually to many practice areas. One piece of, I guess, advice that I would give, I gave it to myself and I followed it and I've given it to others and it doesn't matter, I think, your practice area. Take the money up front. And this is something that I saw lawyers, I saw firms chasing money from clients and it is incredibly inefficient to chase money. And so one thing I do for that is I rarely, I don't think ever, unless it's a truly established business or if it's from a very good referral source, I don't think that I take on a new client or I, w- I don't think I would ever again take on a new client without getting a retainer. But I offer something to the client in exchange and I have two hourly rate models. One is be called cash flow sensitive and one is cost sensitive. All new clients get a significant discount. They get a 20% discount from my normal hourly rate. Why? Because they have to pay me up front. After I know the client, after I've got an established relationship, I can offer the client the opportunity to not pay me up front, to pay me after I invoice them if they're having a cash crunch. And then they pay the full hourly rate. I just, it's so, it's frustrating. It's very costly. And I made a decision with a very good client once. And the client grew, and this was a big mistake I made. It was a situation where the very good client, it was a it was a repeat business, it was a growth business. We did finance work, we did acquisition work, we did a lot of stuff, but the management team was really too small to handle all of its work. But as it grew and as it brought in new private financing, the, the board of directors grew. Well, the one thing I did was because I had a great relationship with the founder and I was able to do work even though their bill was not paid, I would always get something. But if you can imagine a bathtub that's filling up faster than it's draining, that was kind of like their bill. The drain was the bills they were paying. The bathtub was filling up faster than it could handle. And that was my new work. Well, I let the friendship get in the way of my better judgment. And when the board of directors had a sufficient number of people who really didn't know me, they then began to balk at the amount because it was a very significant bill. Um, there was a lot of very sophisticated work that was done and was done very well. And it really was became an unpleasant situation. We did come to a resolution, but you've got to be really careful about that. And, and that was after I knew better. But what I did was I, I allowed the, a very good rapport I had with 
had with the founder get in the way of my decision on how to proceed after the fact. I would just advise to any lawyer starting out is always take a retainer, no matter what it is, and tell the client, this is how it works. Give them a discount. What do you got to lose? Better to give a 5, 10, 15, 20% discount today than do all that work and then have the client say, I can't pay you. I'm assuming you get some objections to that, but I would imagine because it's a new relationship and you are willing to give a discount, just asking for it, you will likely get it. There's so many people out there who don't ask, so they don't receive it. Is that an accurate statement? Oh, I think so. At least in my experience, we're talking to other lawyers. If you don't ask, you don't get it. It's also, look, we've got to screen our clients just like a client has to screen their lawyer. If you have no business practicing in your practice area, the client should say you're not the person for me. By the same token, one way of screening a client for a lawyer is asking the client for a retainer. Because if they're not willing to pay something today that's going to be due in 30 days, that's a risk client. There's a big red flag there. And to be so worried about where your next check is coming from, for me, that has been the best screening mechanism for selecting clients. I want to like what I'm doing. And so I want to like the people I work for. I also want to get paid. And so I screen them for personality. When I say screen, I mean, do I get along with this person? And it's going to be somebody I'm going to want to work with. They should look at their bill. They should question me if they feel like it. And I will make all kinds of time available to explain what's going on. But if the client doesn't want to pay a retainer, even, I mean, especially if it's modest, if you're in New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco and you've got some experience, you're going to be charging minimally $300 an hour. Some of us are a little bit higher depending on what we do or where we are. But if that client is not willing to pay $1,000 or $1,500 in advance when you know and you've told your client, look, we got 20 hours work ahead of us, I wouldn't take the client. I just wouldn't. That's not a good sign. No, I have to agree. But in exchange, they get a 20% discount. You asked me if I get objections a couple of times. Very few. Everybody wants a discount. And I think it's implicit. The client knows that if they're objecting today to a retainer, the lawyer is going to be looking at them like, can I trust you? And I think it makes sense to both sides of the equation. Informative interview, Thaddeus. Any last points you'd like to make before we say goodbye? Just if you don't like what you're doing, you shouldn't be doing it. And you're not going to like what you're doing as a lawyer if you're having trouble getting paid. Absolutely agree. Thaddeus, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Great. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. Be sure to visit www.leftfoot.net to access show notes, sign up for our weekday series, and embrace what it means to lead with the left foot. Thank you.